Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Unlocking your sleep potential. Brought to you by CleanMyBed.com. So welcome to our fourth edition of our Sleep Science Podcasts. And as usual, we have uh, our special guest who's been joining us throughout these podcasts, uh, Dr. Jill Warner, who's with us. But uh, today we have a very special guest with us, and that's uh, Dr. Simon Durant, who is the Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Lincoln, also the Director of the Lincoln Sleep Centre and the President of the British Sleep Society. So Simon, if anybody knows about sleep, it's you. Um, obviously, <laughs> in other words, what, what, how would you define your journey to being in this very specialist area? Um, I actually came in through it uh, through cognitive neuroscience. I'm a neuroscientist, really, uh, with an interest in memory. Um, and my first venture into sleep was actually looking at the role of sleep in helping people to remember things, which is uh, something we've probably uh, talk about at some point during this. Um, and from there, I thought, well, actually, what happens when people don't sleep so well? Because obviously this is affecting their memory, but it's also affecting them in all sorts of other ways. Uh, so I just gradually got more and more into sleep that way and ended up doing sleep for most of what I do. So now the, the subject we're talking about today is particularly on the mental health side. And I'm, I'm in this day and age, I think mental health is obviously a big talking point for many people around the world. Give us a bit of a summary about how you think sleep affects mental health. It has a huge impact in literally on all areas of mental health. So if you think of uh, affective disorders like depression and bipolar, we know that uh, sleep affects these. And conversely, the other way around, they also affect how well you sleep. Uh, anxiety disorders are made much worse by having insufficient sleep. Um, if you have things like what we call specific behavioral disorders, like eating disorders, ADHD, or developmental disorders like autism, all of these are affected by sleep. Even uh, individuals suffering from schizophrenia, uh, dementia, Parkinson's disease, sleep literally impacts on each and every one of them. Uh, in, and in most cases, it impacts them probably more than any other single factor. So it's hugely so, important. Just give us some details about when you say it impacts those particular disorders. Is, is it a lack of sleep or a quality of sleep that's the, that's the issue? Both. Uh, so a, a, a lack of good sleep, you might say. Um, there is, generally speaking, if you have insufficient sleep uh, for most disorders, it's going to make the disorder that much worse or may lead to the onset if you haven't previously experienced it. Um, but poor quality sleep, particularly not getting enough uh, slow wave sleep, so the really deep sleep that you need and that you get mostly in the first half of the night, um, will also tend to lead to it. Um, I mean, Alzheimer's is the obvious example. And again, we might get into that a bit more, but uh, lack of slow wave sleep has been directly implicated in the increased prevalence of Alzheimer's, for example. I'm just going to say, Simon, um, the the very first podcast that, that Dr. Ali Hare talked about when she was discussing all these different components of sleep, I'm not sure that people are totally aware that our night is spent in very different phases of sleep and that each one of them affects different disorders in a different way. Yeah, no, absolutely, exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, you you get obviously you get these different types of sleep during the night, and particularly in the first half of the night, you get what we in the trade we call slow wave sleep. It's it's characterized by lots of neurons firing in sync. Uh, this is your classic deep sleep. It's quite hard to wake somebody up, and it's absolutely essential for. Uh, memory consolidation, which is how I got into the field initially, um, is also essential for brain health, um, including uh, what we call synaptic downscaling. So when you when you learn things during the day, you form connections between neurons that actually so you strengthen these connections, uh, but you increase the overall weight of synapses. Literally, the weight, the mass of synapses in your head increases. And at some point, obviously, you have to decrease this again. Otherwise, you just get an ever-increasing mass uh, that wouldn't work well. Um, and this actually happens during deep sleep, during slow-wave sleep. So it's really essential for keeping the brain uh, in trim, you might say. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the more serious mental illnesses out there, but obviously the ones that are more common are things like anxiety disorders and depression, which is obviously a big factor in this day and age. Can you talk specifically about the, the way that people with those disorders are affected by sleep and, and, and do they struggle to sleep more? And is the quality of sleep directly affecting those conditions? It is. So, um Depression is something that we have looked at uh, a huge amount. So it's one of uh, the main areas of increased mental health problems in society. Uh, so there have been huge increases in the number of people being diagnosed with depression. Depression is now second only to, wait for it, sleep disorders in terms of what's causing people to actually have time off work. Um, and also lack of productivity even when they're in work. So you get sleep disorders first, depression second, and then the, the traditional back problems of, are now down in third place. Uh, and one of the characteristics uh, of depression is a change in actually in REM sleep. So REM sleep is the type of sleep you get more in the second half of the night. Um, it's the type of sleep in which you have your most vivid and memorable dreams. You do actually dream in other stages of sleep as well, but uh, most of your really vivid, memorable and emotional dreams actually occur in REM sleep. Uh, and during um, REM sleep, you can actually consolidate emotional memories, which again is something we can talk about. Um, but REM sleep is characterized, uh, it, it occurs later on, it's characterized by the presence of these rapid eye movements uh, that occur while you're sleeping. Um, and the rest of your body is essentially paralyzed during REM sleep in order to stop you acting out. The incidence of REM sleep, or the, the occurrence of REM sleep in the night, um, it's mostly in the second half of the night, but it occurs earlier for people who have depression and they also get more REM sleep and they get more of the rapid eye movements within REM sleep itself. So increased REM sleep is associated with depression. And interestingly, the increase in REM sleep and the earlier onset of REM sleep precedes the depression. So it's a really good predictor of depression that's going to be coming. So even before people are aware or have experienced any symptoms, they see this change in REM sleep, which can uh, be very useful if you can if you can measure it and predict it for some other reason, uh, then, then you can obviously you can predict the depression. Is there any way that we can link, and uh, this is a kind of off the field question, but there's a lot of talk about the effects of screens and, and cell phones and that kind of thing affecting sleep. Do you think that the effects of 
not being able to sleep properly leads to mental disorders. In other words, the mental order just comes as a result of the lack of sleep and the, the environmental factors like watching television and watching blue screens all the time affects people's sleep. Therefore, they then end up with a mental um, health issue. Uh, yes, in the sense, uh, certainly it depends on which mental health issue we're talking about. So I think in the case of depression, there are probably other causes as well, um, which lead, because the change in REM sleep that you see in depression is typically not caused by a problem with people's sleep onset or their sleep patterns per se. Um, what you see in REM sleep is once the depression has started, sorry, once you see a depression, once the depression has started and uh, you see the change in pattern in REM sleep, then you also see a huge change in overall sleep duration. Uh, and in depression, it's quite interesting because people go one of two ways. So you end up with this sort of U-shaped curve of either greatly increased sleep duration or greatly decreased sleep duration. Uh, in both cases, it's characterized by either early awakening in the decreased duration or really late awakening uh, in the increased duration. Um, and for the people who have decreased sleep, they also tend to struggle with insomnia, but not everybody with depression does. In terms of technology, it's interesting. Technology certainly contributes to the problem, um, but in a sense, it's also symptomatic of what you might say a wider pressures towards social jet lag in society. So compared to 40 or 50 years ago, people report having much greater demands on their time. Um, and obviously the internet and technology, et cetera, are one of the things that are leading to demands, but working hours have also increased. The number of times people go to the gym has increased. The number of social activities, almost everything that involves doing something has increased. As a result of which, when people get into the evening, they either have things to do or if they haven't, if they finally got through the list of things they need to do, they want to have some me time. So a lot of people report pushing their bedtimes back and back and back. One of the things that they use to fill the time is indeed technology. We know that technology is bad in the sense that it can stimulate uh, people and the blue light can suppress melatonin production, which in turn keeps people awake a bit more, makes it harder to get to sleep. Uh, but it's the social jet lag. So even if you put your blue light filter on, if you're still using your phone or your computer, it's still going to interfere with your sleep. It's still going to reduce the amount of sleep that you're ultimately going to get, which will lead to many of these mental health disorders. Exactly. Simon, I'm I'm really interested in this in terms of, um, I know when I haven't slept well, I can be in quite a, a bad mood the next morning. Is there a bi-directional relationship between sleep and mood and which way around they, they are affected? Absolutely, yes. You're, you're spot on there, absolutely is. The, the, the relationship between sleep and mood is quite interesting in the sense that we have quite a good grasp of the mechanism in, in the sense. So obviously in your, in your brain, you have this area called the amygdala. And the amygdala is responsible for emotional reactivity. Uh, it, it was traditionally associated with fear. So really it has a strong bias towards negative emotions, but actually positive emotions as well result in greater amygdala activity. During the daytime, your amygdala is suppressed. It's kept under control by the sort of the developed executive areas in your prefrontal cortex. This is what stops you reacting in a, in a way that you might see in, in other mammals, for example, uh, where they will 
be really driven by their emotional responses. So we tend to try to keep it under control through our executive control. However, if you are sleep deprived, the prefrontal control of the amygdala is reduced. We see a, a, a very clear, quite dramatic reduction in what we call the functional connectivity from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala and greater amygdala activity uh, subsequently in people who are sleep deprived. Most of those people experience negative emotions as a result of their increased amygdala activity, which is why they're typically in a bad mood. It also uh, interferes with their executive function. Um, so it actually has a, also a feedback loop. So this increased amygdala activity in turn suppresses and interferes with their prefrontal activity, which is why their cognition is also significantly impaired. A, a minority of people actually become euphoric. Uh, so you will often see uh, people who have bipolar disorder, um, are they have generally very poor sleep, but sometimes after a night of particularly poor sleep, they have a real euphoria uh, the following day where the amygdala is really active, but it's very positively active. Um, so it can go either way, but for most people, yeah, it ends up being um, really a, a damper on the mood. When you, when you, I mean, I'm very interested to see your role, particularly with the Lincoln Sleep Centre and also as, as head of the British Sleep Society. What are the big issues that you deal with there and what, what, what do you actually do in terms of improving people's sleep? Uh, the, the main thing we deal with is insomnia. So people come, I can't get to sleep for whatever reason. Or, and sometimes they know why they can't get to sleep and sometimes they don't. Um, the extent of it varies, but even people even as you might say as little as 20 minutes, which can still feel like an awfully long time when you're lying there trying to get to sleep and knowing you have to get up in the morning and 20 minutes has passed and you're still awake. Um, but sometimes many hours. Uh, so we get individuals who get only two or three hours a night, night after night consistently, because they lie there for five hours unable to get to sleep. So this is the definitely the number one problem that we uh, have to deal with um, more widely. So that is also the number one problem in society in terms of sleep disorders. Uh, a, a fairly close second to what we call sleep uh, breathing disorders or uh, sleep related breathing disorders, most notably obstructive sleep apnea. So this is where uh, you may have seen people when and during the night, they appear to stop breathing for a period of seconds. Uh, it can be quite alarming when you see, see this happening and you wonder what's going to happen, maybe 30 seconds or more. And then there's a big gasp and they will start to breathe. They take a really deep breath and start to breathe. Often people will wake up or they will have what we call micro arousals. It's almost like a, a minor awakening and then they're straight back to sleep again. This is also increasingly common in society. Uh, it, it's associated both uh, as you get older, it come, becomes more, um, but it's also associated with weight gain. So the heavier you are, the much more likely you are uh, to experience this. A lot of people who experience this, are they're sent to respiratory physicians. Um, so uh, my colleague, Alana, again, will actually... Uh, tell you much more about this because she's a respiratory physician who deals with obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and it's treated generally through what's called continuous positive airway pressure. So essentially people actually have a device strapped to them that's pushing air down the throat in order to keep the airway open because otherwise the problem is that the airway closes and stops you breathing. Uh, this does have, from my perspective, consequences for mental health and memory, etc. So we have seen evidence, for example, of 
uh, even a decrease in the volume of the area of the brain or the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory in individuals who suffer from long-term sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, um, wow. compared to those who don't. Uh, so it's really important that it does get treated. Um, more broadly, individuals who have that have excessive daytime sleepiness. So even if they think they've been asleep and they've had a a good seven or eight hours overnight because of the micro arousals they've got relatively little deep sleep and a lot of disruption um, and it's really impacting on their daytime functionality and their mood and ultimately their mental health simon i've, I've heard that there uh, can be a relationship between autism and sleep as well is is that right yes yeah exactly so um children who are diagnosed with autism or develop autism at an early age show sleep problems even from about the age of two years onwards so you don't normally see it within the first two years but from two years onwards you see a, a difference essentially the children with autism are getting less sleep uh, and interestingly because obviously uh, children of that age are still going to be having daytime naps the daytime naps are fine so days, the amount of time you're sleeping during the daytime is exactly the same between children with autism, children without. Um, but the nighttime sleep is even from about the age of two, three onwards and around the age of about five to eight is when it gets at its worst. They're sleeping an hour, an hour and a half less than children who don't have autism, which has a huge impact. Even by the time they've reached adulthood, there is still a deficit. And for most, even autistic adults, uh, there remains a reduction actually in the amount of sleep they obtain. It seems to be primarily a sleep onset problem. So as much as anything, they are struggling to get to sleep. So insomnia is much greater uh, in individuals who suffer from autism. And uh, one of the potential solutions or one of the things that's used quite effectively is the development of, actually of a routine. Routine is good for everybody who suffers from insomnia. So this is probably a, a generally a good thing. Um, uh, but it seems to be particularly important for, for individuals with autism. Um, it's, it's quite prevalent. So pretty much all fairly yeah almost all children with insomnia and as far as we know almost all adults with insomnia do have this reduced overnight sleep um, so it's really very widespread you know almost, almost universal um, adults are much less well studied than children so there's a fair amount of research on children with autism um, in terms of their sleep much less on adults uh, so we really need to do a lot more there um there hasn't been any established role, as far as I'm aware, in reductions in sleep duration or sleep quality in causing autism. So in this case, unusually for a mental health disorder, it does seem to be much more of a one directional relationship. But certainly autism does affect sleep and it is specifically the overnight sleep, particularly sleep onset. Just take, taking a step back, you talked a lot about insomnia being one of the major reasons why people engage with your facilities. Mm. Is is insomnia one of the major reasons why people suffer from insomnia, mental health issue, or what other issues affect insomnia? In other words, why why do we get it? Because we all get it to some extent, mm -hmm. um, but when when is it when is it become chronic? Okay. Uh in terms of chronic, so, well, so I'll give you the formal definition for insomnia in, uh, from, from the NHS would be that you have to experience significant problems getting to sleep for at least three times a week 
over a period of at least three months. So if you hit the three month point, we'll start to call it chronic insomnia. Um, and most people, unfortunately, do hit that point at some point or other. There are basically four categories of things that cause difficulties sleeping. First and relatively easy are environmental factors. So a lot of people report difficulty, greater difficulties or shortened sleep duration in the summer. Turns out because they are really waking up early in the morning because light is coming in. And blackout blinds, it sounds crazy, but blackout blinds are one of the best things that you can do, failing that a sleep mask. Um, so if ever you're encountering light, similarly, a number of people have street lights or other environmental light that's still coming in during the night. It is hugely disruptive, much more than you might realize. So if you can block out the light, do keep the lights out of the room as far as possible. Um, similarly for noise, a noise is a double-edged sword. So there can be disruptive noise, um, and obviously disruptive noise is terrible for, for getting to sleep if, if they're, uh, this is obviously something that particularly affects shift workers where you've got the roadworks going on outside and you really just can't get to sleep. Um, noise can actually also be beneficial in the case of psychological factors, which I'll come on to in a minute though, because it's one of our, our key areas. Uh, there are physiological factors, temperature. Um, generally speaking, a reduction in body temperature is a good cue to sleep. So one of the old pieces of uh, traditional advice was to have a bath before you go to bed. Uh, this is actually grounded in science. So if you have a bath, it raises your body temperature. You get out of the bath, it reduces your body temperature and cues you to go to sleep. So it does actually work. So that's good. Um, make sure that the, the bedroom is not too hot or it will help keep you awake. If you have any other physiological things like comorbid pain, again, we, we do get some people coming in and we have to address those or even other physiological sleep disorders. So there's a, an interesting one called restless leg syndrome, um, which sounds on the face of it sounds trivial, but I can promise you it's anything but for the people who experience it, uh, which is you're lying in bed and you have an overwhelming urge to move your legs. You have to move your legs and you can't stop moving your legs. Um, and it drives people crazy. Uh, it, it's quite difficult to treat. Um, mostly it's the sort of dopamine treatments that people can get for this, um, but it will really keep people awake. I'm 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 nodding because I'm so. It was quite interesting. A little bit um, earlier on, uh, we've been discussing environmental influences. Rake Neatling, who's the gold medal swimmer uh, here, yeah. in and all of those things that you have you have just mentioned, mm -hmm. he he came up with. He said, and it was it was a wonderful story about how when you're still competing and you're in the Olympic village and the person next to you has finished their competition and they come back and they're celebrating and you're trying to sleep. So sleep. you've got light and noise. Exactly. And so all of those things you've just said yeah. are, are incredibly relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the, the British cycling team, you know, when they, they had uh, in their heyday, they had this, um, uh, it was essentially a policy of making really small changes to lots of things to have a, a cumulatively beneficial effect. I can't remember the phrase for now. Uh, one that's of the things it. they did was that they marginal took marginal gains. Marginal gains. That's it. That's a, yeah, yes. you've got it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Uh, they they took their own pillows with them because they thought that this would actually help them sleep 
better. Um, and where possible, they would avoid the Olympic village where they were allowed for exactly the reasons you've just described. Um, so, yeah, those things can make a huge difference to athletes. Exactly. Uh, so there's environmental factors and physiological factors. Uh, there are behavioral factors. So one of the things we try to tell people is, is good sleep hygiene, behavioral advice. That means turn off your devices at least half an hour before bed. Reading a book really is a good thing to do. Um, many people, and this is a whole different topic, but many people struggle to concentrate when they're reading these days. This is partly related to the internet and mobile phones and all sorts of other things. Um, so they're struggling to concentrate on their book. They've got no other distractions around. It makes them feel sleepy and they do actually sleep. So sleeping, re reading a book before bed is actually a good thing. Keep the phone out of the bedroom insofar as you can. Turn the computer off, turn the television off. Avoid caffeine in the evening. Um, caffeine is one of those interesting things that is in some sense a little bit misunderstood. So caffeine blocks the receptors for a chemical called adenosine. The buildup of adenosine over, uh, over the course of the day is what leads you to need deep sleep. So slow wave sleep and adenosine is cleared during slow wave sleep. Um, uh, and um, as a result of which, when people are drinking their morning coffee, what they're experiencing is mostly a placebo effect, because actually you don't really have much benefit from the caffeine there, even though you might think you do. By the time of the evening, caffeine can have a huge physiological effect. Uh, so definitely want to try and avoid taking caffeine and um obviously the coffee and to an extent tea and other things um, in the evening. Uh, avoid alcohol. Alcohol is an interesting one in that it does actually help to overcome insomnia or sleep onset insomnia. So it will help you get to sleep earlier. This is true, but it will wake you up in the middle of the night. Uh, and overall, your sleep duration will decrease. So we suggest even avoiding alcohol, even though it's, it's quite tempting. Routine is good. Uh, if you can go to bed at approximately the same night, uh, sorry, same time each night and get up at the same time each morning, including weekends, uh, it's very difficult for many people. I know the temptation to have the line of the weekend is there. Um, but if that routine really is good. Your body learns when it's going to go to sleep, when it's going to get up. This really does help with insomnia. Last and most of all are psychological factors. It is undoubtedly the number one cause of insomnia are people who they, they're going to go to sleep. They're worried about not being able to sleep if they've previously experienced insomnia. But the chances are they're also worrying about many, many other things. And they will lie there uh, and they will think about things. Uh, and worry. There, there are various things that you can do. Uh, first and foremost, quite a lot of people listen to music or talk radio or audio books or even white noise. Uh, this is actually very effective. It depends what works for you, um, but definitely give it a go. Uh, and if you suffer from intrusive thoughts, this is one way to try to block out those intrusive thoughts. The only caveat, uh, we looked at this in the lab, is make sure you turn off the source of sound, get it to automatically turn off shortly after you expect to be asleep, because otherwise it actually does disrupt your sleep and reduces the amount of both slow wave sleep and REM sleep that you get. Uh, meditation and mindfulness before bed are really useful uh, in this case. Both of them have been well shown in, in a number of trials to actually be quite effective in helping people to overcome insomnia and get better. Um, and failing those, uh, the clinical treatment, the recommended clinical treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Uh, this is 
Well, the availability of this in the UK is patchy, I might describe it as. Um, uh, but the CBTI, as we call it, it's been proven to be very effective, both delivered in person uh, by a therapist um, or delivered actually online. So um, there is online CBTI, which is now available through the NHS uh, that GPs in principle can prescribe and has also been shown to be effective. So these things are effective. Um, generally speaking, avoid sleeping pills if you possibly can. Uh, sleeping pills don't help most people to get to sleep. So they're actually quite ineffective at overcoming insomnia. Um, and for every person that they do help, they actually disrupt about three other people. So the chances are it's going to be disruptive for you rather than helpful for you. So definitely go for one of the psychological therapies first. Simon, could I just get you for the people who might not know, just to explain cognitive behavioural therapy? What What is it? Oh. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a, a series of techniques that were developed um, well, several decades ago now, but it's really become... It's become, you might say, fashionable in the last 20 years, not just for insomnia, but for all sorts of psychological therapies. And the whole idea is based on uh, it's based on the notion that your feelings come from your thoughts. Your behavior is driven largely by your feelings. So if you can control your thoughts or change your thinking patterns, you will then change how you feel. You will change how you behave. When you change how you behave, that will help you to continue with positive thinking patterns. And you end up with this positive cycle between the two. So it's really an intervention at the point of thoughts and training people to think more positive things. In the context of insomnia, CBTI combines classic CBT techniques such as training you to think particular things or to learn to think things, to learn to block out negative thoughts or to turn them into positive thoughts. It combines those with other things like sleep hygiene with the need for routines, uh, sometimes sleep restriction therapy, where actually you get people to start off sleeping at a later time and then bringing their sleep time forward. So all of these get combined in CBTI. Uh, but it's very much focused on changing thoughts to change feelings, to change behavior. Are there certain medications that affect sleep, like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication? Are they good and bad for sleep? Oh, they are. And so uh, antidepressants. So as we were talking about depression, this, this is really one of our key areas. So I'll give you the, the, the longer version of this. That's all right. Um, so we know that REM sleep is changed. So REM sleep is lengthened in people who have depression. They have more REM sleep, they have earlier REM sleep. We also know separately, uh, so hold that thought, we also know people who have depression have what we call a negative perception bias. So all things being equal, they will perceive the same event more negatively or will interpret something more negatively than somebody who does not have depression. Third thing, we know that REM sleep in particular is involved in the consolidation, i.e. the strengthening of emotional memories. If you put all of those things together, what you get is that people who have depression, they perceive things more negatively. They have more REM sleep, so they have a greater opportunity to remember negative memories so they have more negative perceptions or more negative events 
and they have more opportunity to remember these relative to other events. And the result is that they do remember them. So we've actually tested this comparing people with depression and not depression. And people who are depressed remember negative items. For example, if you give them pictures, negative pictures, positive pictures, they will disproportionately remember the negative pictures. And how much more so depends on how much REM sleep they get. So if people have a lot of REM sleep, they will really remember the negative items much more than anything else. One uh, almost last line treatment that has historically been used for depression is actually sleep deprivation. And this does work for about 60 to 70 percent of people, but it's a very short term thing. Often it'll only work until the next night. Um, in all cases, the effects are pretty much gone uh, by about two weeks or so after the treatment. So in that sense, it, it, it's not useful as a long term treatment, but it can be used for immediate relief. Uh, are, are we wondered, well, maybe this is a wonder why this is and maybe this is related to, to the technique. So we did selective actually sleep de uh, deprivation of REM sleep. So because people get most of their REM sleep in the second half of the night, you can suppress that by keeping them awake in the second half, but allowing them to sleep in the first half. And then you can compare it with people who are only sleeping in the second half. And sure enough, so the people who get most of their REM sleep still were still feeling very depressed the following day. The people who slept as much, but with much less REM sleep, because they were sleeping in the first half of the night, had much more relief of their REM, uh, of their, sorry, their depressive symptoms the following day. So this does actually seem to work. So to come back to your question, what effect do antidepressants have? Well, most antidepressants suppress REM sleep. Uh, yeah. This has always been seen as a side effect of antidepressants. Some people thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder why this happens and uh, haven't really thought any more of it. Um, for us, we think this is probably at least part of the way in which antidepressants actually have an effect is by suppressing the REM sleep and suppressing the emotional memory consolidation. Simon, there's a, a lot of interest now in uh, dementia, um, particularly in, in the older population. Is sleep related to dementia or type of sleep? Uh, yes, it certainly is. Um, it's one of those classic bidirectional relationships. Uh, but in this case, we know that sleep has a, a causal role in uh, leading to dementia. It's one of at least the top two factors in predicting uh, the onset of dementia is is sleep duration or, or, or lack thereof. Um, so the less sleep you get, the more likely you are to develop dementia. Um, and this really applies to all forms of dementia um, in later life. And uh, in the case of, for example, Alzheimer's disease, it's quite interesting because we have some sense of a particular mechanism here. Um, during the, uh, the day, you will uh, actually develop or you, you will generate what are called beta amyloid proteins um, in the brain, um, which are uh, fine. This is obviously this is part of normal, normal cognitive activity, normal neural activity. Um, these are cleared during the night, uh, during slow wave sleep, during deep sleep. So this is again an example of deep sleep actually involved in, you might say, uh, neural housekeeping in some sense. Um, we know, however, that individuals who get insufficient slow wave sleep do not successfully clear all of their beta amyloids, and these build up over time uh, and develop the, what we call the beta amyloid plaques, which are seen in Alzheimer's disease. There's also an increase 
uh, in the level of tau proteins, um, which are uh, these are sort of relatively unstructured or sort of unstable proteins. They're stable when they're connected to other things, but they're not stable uh, when they're just floating around, having not been successfully cleared up. As a result of this, uh, they effectively do structural damage. So what you see in Alzheimer's disease with these amyloid plaques is literally structural damage, almost like pitting occurring uh, throughout the brain, um, which obviously causes the cognitive effects of dementia. And this is directly related to the amount of slow wave sleep you obtain um, and have obtained uh, in earlier points in your life. So not just at that particular time. Uh, so we definitely know that sleep and sleep duration, sleep quality, because obviously poor sleep quality, you'll get less deep sleep uh, is really important for that. Um, conversely, uh, we know that individuals who suffer from dementia also have really poor sleep. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this. I mean, in the first place, uh, individuals who have dementia uh, are quite hard to get into a routine. And um, obviously, it depends on the level of functionality that's still there. Um, but sleep hygiene, good sleep hygiene um, is difficult to obtain. Uh, individuals, when you get older, uh, the amount of deep sleep decreases dramatically anyway. Uh, to the extent that some estimates would say a, a third of people over the age of 60 have almost no deep sleep at all, <clears throat> which again increases the likelihood that uh, you're going to be waking up, you're going to be getting less sleep. Um, and another significant factor is that quite a lot of individuals with dementia live in care homes, and care homes are one of those environments in which sleep is significantly disrupted. Um, so there are very often we find that lights are on um, or people are being interrupted every two hours for observations and things. So things that might happen for perfectly good reasons, but nevertheless are very disruptive uh, to the sleep of the residents. Um, so dementia is definitely uh, leading to poor sleep, both directly and indirectly. And poor sleep has previously probably contributed to the onset of dementia for pretty much anybody who's going to have it. So my final question to you, because you have all this knowledge about sleep and you've spent a lot of time with it, tell us about your evening routine yourself. What do you what do you do ah, when you, ah, you get a bit well, at night? <laughs> sleep scientists are the worst people for sleep hygiene. Uh, I, I mean, I say we because we spend our nights uh, studying other people's sleep. Our sleep is all invariably terrible, and I I have quite a delayed phase anyway. So I sleep. When I have the opportunity, I sleep very well. Um, I never struggle to get sleep. And one of the reasons I never struggle to get sleep is uh, one of the key things that some people who have insomnia don't recognize is that you need to be sleepy before you try to sleep. It sounds crazy, but I am almost literally falling asleep at my desk before I ever try or, or on the sofa or wherever it is before I try to sleep and my head hits the, hits the pillow and I'm out like a light. Uh, what time that is, <laughs> I'll be honest, it depends how much work I've had to do and how many emails I've got and what's on the following day, etc. So uh, I am I have really bad sleep hygiene, but, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Simon Duran, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Simon. That was really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Oh, it was great. Thanks. Very enjoyable.
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.